Well, don't tell the other campuses, but you're my favorite, okay? I love what God is doing here, and I love that, that you all are, are uh, participating in what's going on here. So if you're brand new, just really glad you've joined us this, tonight. And, uh, and I count it a privilege to be on the, the pastoral team at Central, part of the, the bigger thing, but, but really fun to be a part of, of you know, get, get my way around the individual campuses that we have. And so it's really fun to be at Lake Iraq tonight. I get to go see Promontory tomorrow morning. It's awesome. And I love what God's doing in our church, especially uh, this new thing that God is doing here. Anybody know who Rex Murphy is? Yeah. yeah. So I, I like to refer to Rex Murphy as like the Don Cherry of Canadian journalism, you know? That's kind of what he's like. And he, he wrote this uh, op-ed piece in the, the National Post uh, er, a few weeks ago now about a climate summit that was held in Sicily where uh, a number of billionaires and A-list celebrities uh, were joined by the, the two co-founders of Google, um, invited to Sicily for a climate summit. And, and what Rex Murphy had to say about that was, so here are 300 of the most powerful people in the world. They want to talk about, you know, clean energy and, and reducing the carbon footprint of people around the globe. And yet, for the 300 people that attended the summit, 114 private jets flew in to their airspace. But he said, not everyone went by private jet. You know, it wasn't that there was three to one, you know, three people per private jet. Some of them went by super yacht as well. And over the course of that climate summit, as, as an activity they could do in their free time, they had the uh, opportunity to drive one of the many $200,000 Maserati sports cars, high fuel sports cars around just to jaunt around in their free time there. At the end of the article, he said, but to their credit, there were no plastic straws. <laughs> so like Rex Murphy, we can look in on that whole scenario and say, they want the minions of the world to reduce their carbon footprint, but we will have mansions around the globe and we will have the biggest carbon footprints, and yet we will call all the other people to something that we won't do. So what Rex Murphy was saying, look at the hypocrisy of these celebrities. What I'm about to say next is not politically motivated at all. I just want you to hear that. The next thing I'm doing is merely reporting on another piece of news you may have noticed in the last couple weeks. It has to do with our prime minister. He got into hot water lately, didn't he? Because he's dubbed himself as the most progressive prime minister that we have ever had, right? About racial equality and all sorts of things, and yet pictures have surfaced, video has surfaced of him in uh, wearing blackface, or what's been referred to in the articles as brownface. And the photos have surfaced where uh, months ago as well, through his treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould, we have someone saying, I'm the most progressive prime minister we've ever had. I'm the most feminist. And yet here is how he's treated Jody Wilson-Raybould. Or he's said, I am for uh, racial equality. And yet here he is um, on multiple occasions wearing blackface uh, makeup. The challenge is... He's saying one thing, but his actions have shown him on multiple occasions to show another. I'm not making a political statement about that. I'm just saying that we can look in and what do we see? We see that to a certain degree, there has also been political hypocrisy, right? 
All right. But here's where I need to li- you to listen close. As, as much as you might shake your head in disgust or even revel in the backlash on these celebrities and politicians, perhaps you don't support, it's the hypocrisy actually of religious people that is most off-putting to many. So much so that people today aren't really asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? Why are Christians such hypocrites? So this fall, we're looking in at the doubts that people outside of the church have and the niggling doubts that those inside of the church also share. And so the, the, the doubt uh, of uh, hypocrisy, I guess the, the question of the faith doubt that's underneath it is this, how can Christianity be true when Christians are hypocrites? It's a pervasive question And it's the question we want to wrestle with a little bit tonight. Just so we're using, uh, understanding the terms we're using, um, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who claims beliefs that his or her actions don't conform to. So people might be looking in at the Christian faith or at Christians and say, their faith says they shouldn't gossip, but they're the biggest gossip that I know. Or doesn't their faith tell them not to get drunk? And yet they party and get drunk like every weekend and sober up just in time to go to church. And if you ask me, I think they might even be hung over at church. Doesn't their faith tell them that they are to have chastity or reserve sex only for the context of marriage? And yet there they are sleeping around or cheating on their spouse. So hypocrisy is those who preach the cause but act its opposite. I need to tell you a personal story before we go any further. There's a Rolodex of personal stories I could tell you about the hypocrisy of Pastor Matt, you know? Uh, But here's one. I'm giving myself a a bit of a break here by going with with a basic one. number of years ago, before I was the lead pastor of our church, you know, before, back when I was hypocritical, right? I, uh, I wanted to get the new iPhone that was coming out. This was year, maybe the four, I don't know. It was many years ago, but I was excited. My, the term was coming up on my phone. A new iPhone was coming out. I was timing this thing just right. And so I went to the, uh, the cell provider will remain nameless, but they had a kiosk in the middle of the big walkway in the mall, you know, just right there in the middle of the big walkway. And uh, I went there and I said, hey, the phone's coming out soon. How do I get one? They said, well, we're doing a waiting list. And so I said, great. And I was second on the list. They're like, we think we'll get a half dozen in a couple days when they're released and you can, you know, we'll call you and you can get one. Those two days went by, no call. So I really wanted this phone. So I showed up and I said to them, hey, I haven't heard anything, but the phone's been released. And they said, oh, you know what? Um, the demand was so great that we just gave them first come, first serve. And I was like, so in that moment, Christian, Matt Schantz, in the middle of the most public area of the whole mall, began to berate the Rogers employee. Uh, well, why'd you have a waiting list? 
What was the waiting list for? I was on the list. You were going to get six. I was number two. You could have called me. I would have been here. And there I was, probably flailing my hands and yelling at this poor guy in the mall kiosk. Like, what do we do about this hypocrisy thing where we're like, yeah, yeah, there is hypocrisy in the church. Yeah, Christians have been hypocritical in so many ways. Like, how do we talk about this? Well, let's read the passage we have uh, that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 7, and then I'll, I'll share a roadmap with you and how we'll, we'll work this through. We're going to look at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 19. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, for I do not do, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's on to verse 1 of chapter 8. Here's the roadmap. Here's where we're going to go tonight. First, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. Second, the church contains Christian hypocrites. And third, the church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. Okay, so here's the first. This passage, um, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. Now, I, I need you to know that there are a couple um, prominent, dominant uh, interpretations of Romans chapter 7, differing views on, on who the people are that the Apostle Paul is talking about and what I just read to you. Here's the first interpretation. This passage refers to unbelievers. We're going to do a little theological work. It's going to be confusing for a couple minutes, but I'm going to clarify what I'm saying here. So in Romans chapter 6, just before the chapter I read to you, we read, We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. But then it goes on in chapter six, from chapter 6 to chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 14 where it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. In other words, in Romans chapter 6, Paul's saying, Christians have been delivered. They are no longer slaves to sin. They are slaves to Christ. But then he keeps writing and he moves on to chapter 7 and he refers to the person in chapter 7 as someone who is a slave to sin. So then that, that is why many interpreters will say, see, the Christian is not a slave to sin, they're a slave to Christ. But the description in chapter 7 of someone, is of someone who is a slave to sin, meaning the description is of someone who is an unbeliever. 
So the, the, the first reason then that judgmental, mean-spirited, inconsistent people, hypocritical people are in the church is because the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. Jesus himself warned this when he said in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. What, what Jesus is saying is that Jesus taught there would be false teacher, teachers in the world who would lead people astray, and he instructs his followers to evaluate the content and fruit of ministry leaders' ministries. But he goes on. He doesn't just talk that there, say that there will be false prophets. He goes on in Matthew 7 to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, meaning there will also be false disciples in the world. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whew. See, what we need to be clear on is that Christianity isn't the title for a group of good moral people who avoid cursing. And when they watch a movie together, it's only a Christian movie. Or when they listen to music, it's only Christian music. Or they always attend church. These are not the definitions of a Christian. Christianity isn't the title for a group of good moral people who know some stuff about Jesus. The book of James is a shocking book where James, the brother of Jesus, writes that even de demons believe in God. Demons believe and they shudder but they believe, meaning mere intellectual assent doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves those who repent and believe in his name. It's a scary thought. It's not a pleasant thought. It's not a great point one in the sermon tonight. But it's true. There are those who deceive others and themselves and who actually don't know or act like Jesus at all. It's kind of the first answer I want to give to you as, as to why people would look in and say, Christians are hypocrites. Right now, it's believed that the church is shrinking in North America. Have you heard any of these, kind of seen the data or, or, or maybe seen any of the stats that, that the church in North America, Christianity is shrinking? It's alarming many people, many people in the church. It's alarming. It doesn't alarm me. I'll tell you why. What's disappearing right now in North America is something referred to as the mushy middle. It's a weird name, the mushy middle. And all that's referring to is cultural Christianity. Christian in title alone, but nothing else. The mushy middle is disappearing. In other words, the people who in historically didn't go to church, um, didn't let Jesus radically change their lives, but when the survey came out, they ticked Christian in the box. What, what's happening right now is they're not ticking the box anymore, essentially. Those are the ones who aren't. The mushy middle are disappearing. What's disappearing in the Christian landscape then are those who claim to be morally upright, but look, sound, act, and live no differently than anyone else in the world. 
James, that, the writer of James, the brother of Jesus, goes on to write that faith without works is dead, meaning authentic faith changes how disciples actually live. And so there's a, there's a whole demographic of churchgoers or, or people who claim to be Christians where Jesus doesn't make a dent on their living. Their lives, the lives of, of authentic Christians then does, do look different, but the lives of those who, who have a mere intellectual assent and tick the box, their lives often don't look different. So the first group of hypocrites we're talking about of, are those who aren't actually Christians, but who claim to be. Those who wear the title of Christian are observed by people in society who assume they're Christian, but who never actually try to learn from him or live out what he taught and take his teachings seriously. So here's the warning. Our confession of faith must be coupled with God-honoring lives, love and good deeds. And where, there ha where that hasn't been happening because of inauthentic faith, it's rightly looked completely distasteful and hypocritical to the watching world. That's the first thing I'd want to say. Here's the second. The second thing that needs to be said is that the church actually does contain Christian hypocrites. People who are saved by grace, but who still, nonetheless, have hypocritical behavior. And here's what I need us to hear. Our willful sinfulness, our lack of pursuit of holiness and purity actually stands in the way of the Christian faith for many people. I mean, do you notice this in your lives? Maybe you've had conversation with folks in your lives that you care about and they say, I can't believe in Jesus because there's all, I just look at, I look at the followers, I look at the Christians and I look at how they act. See, hypocrisy leads some people to reject Christianity, and that should alarm us, church. We're called in 2 Corinthians 5 to be ambassadors for Christ, and any time our hypocrisy makes us bad ambassadors, that should grieve our hearts. I think as part of my sermon tonight, I'd actually like to call us to repentance. Call us to repentance for the hypocrisy that we have um, that we have had. John Johnstone, not here tonight, but a part of this, this community, this faith community. And, and some of the work before we launched the campus here was just, was just getting to know the community a bit. And John would drive his big F-350 diesel into town, and he would just st strike up conversations with people that he would meet. And, uh, and he would r routinely ask people in, in this community a question. He would point towards this building and say, is there anything that this church needs to repent of? You know, um, it was a time to relaunch, replant here, re some revitalization in the community, in the church. And I just thought it was a really good question. The exact same question could be asked in Chil Chilliwack as they point to our, our central campus there or up in Promontory or in Agassiz. Does that church have anything to repent of? We always do. But I thought it was a beautiful question. And oftentimes people would look at him and say, well, yeah, actually this or that. And John and I and Chris and others, we, we've literally been on our knees in this room before we planted, repenting before Jesus. And, and Donald Miller did the same thing in his book, Blue Like Jazz. He went to a really liberal college in Oregon. 
And him and some Christian friends decided that they would set up on a weekend at this liberal college, they would set up a confessional booth in the middle of the courtyard of the college. So it was a party weekend, people were up late and they were drinking and they'd walk across the campus and they'd come across this confessional booth sitting right outside in the courtyard. And so they'd kind of think, this is hilarious. And they'd go inside, probably had a few too many drinks. They'd sit in the confessional booth and they'd start to actually confess sin, (laughs) confess stuff they had done. And Donald Miller's sitting in the other side, but he would stop them because that night when these Christians set up the confessional booth in the middle of this college, the point wasn't that they could get their fellow students to repent. The point was they wanted to confess the sins of the church. And Donald would sit in that confessional booth and confess the ways that the church and Christians had acted wrongly and sincerely ask for their forgiveness. And you know what began to happen? Christianity began that day to start to have a platform because they thought that's authentic, that's real. They're owning their own stuff, had massive impact on the college and actually gave them credibility and a hearing to invite them to to know Jesus. Mark 1, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all from each of their perspectives. In Mark, it starts in chapter 1 and it tells us that Jesus began his ministry by calling people to repent. But here's the thing. He was saying it to religious people. See, when it comes to hypocrisy, this is where we need to start. This is where we need to start as followers of Jesus. We need to repent to God, and we need to apologize to those that we have been hypocritical before. If you are someone or someone you love is doubting Christianity because of the hypocrisy of the church, I, I want to I invite you to, to think of it maybe a slightly different way than, than you might often do. Instead of asking how morally upright is this person, ask the question, where did this person start from? You know? It's just a little bit of a different shift in, in how we look at it. Because often we look at the Christian and expect that they are going to act perfectly. They are going to live correctly all the time. But that's not possible. And so rather than ask the question, are they living like Jesus in that situation? Ask, where did they start from? Can I just get back to my mall kiosk scenario for a minute? I haven't flipped out at a mall kiosk guy in years. Can I just get an amen for that? All right, I heard one. There we go. And I should hope not. Every time I walk by that Rogers kiosk, I shudder like, oh, I'm such an idiot, right? Why did I do that? But I haven't done that since. Why? Because I'm not where I was. I'm not in the same spot. See, we look in at the church. Sometimes people look in and say, that guy goes to your church? That guy's a Christian? Do you know how he lives? And I'll say, yeah, I know how he lives, but he became a Christian three months ago. And he's not the same guy he was three months ago. The same thing can be said. She's not the same person she was three years ago. God's doing a work in her. She's growing. She's changing. God's transforming her. The beauty of Jesus is being seen in her more and more and more and more. Praise God. But she will still, if you look in at the wrong moment, 
act like a complete hypocrite. But I think it's a helpful question to ask. There's a trajectory in the life of every Christian. Henry Nouwen, I love Henry Nouwen, he wrote this. We can only, uh, can we only speak when we are fully living what we are saying? If all our words had to cover all our actions, we would be doomed to permanent silence. Sometimes we're called to proclaim God's love even when we are not yet fully able to live it. And therein lies the tension. We're called to preach it. We're called to tell it even when our lives aren't perfectly living it. And I think, I really believe the church know this about ourselves. I don't think we always project this well about ourselves, but we know this about ourselves. We're messed up. We're sinful. And we, we get it. We, it can look hypocritical from the outside. But I want us to look back at our Romans text. When you study Romans 5 through 8, you see the flow from justification by faith. I'm going to define that in a minute. You see justification by faith in chapter 5. And then if you keep reading, by the, when you get to ju- uh, Romans chapter 8, you get to uh, glorification. The, the, the Christian who will one day be glorified. That's the church. So Romans 5, justification. Romans 8, glorification. I'm going to describe these terms. So what's in between? Well, chapter 6. Here's, here's the theological word of the day. Chapter 6 deals with antinomianism. Antinomianism is a fancy word to describe opposing and rejecting God's law. Paul in chapter 6 is pushing back on those who... who oppose and reject God's law in light of the gospel and says, no, you're separating the law of God from the person of God. Love is what the law demands and commands are what the law, lo, lo, love fulfills. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so Paul is speaking into those tensions about the law in Romans 6. And then in chapter 7, he deals with the purpose and limits of the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments and everything that kind of comes from those. Where the struggle Paul describes in chapter 7 is between himself as a new creation in Christ and his old sinful nature that still rears its ugly head. The struggle of chapter 7 then, and and this is where I land on this text, is, is what it means to be a Christian who is fully justified, not yet glorified, but being sanctified. Let me define the terms. Justification means dealing with the guilt of sin. When you come to Christ, you are justified. Your sin has been dealt with. At the moment of conversion, when you surrender your life to Christ, you've been justified. Glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. Jesus will come again, and when he does, he will set everything right, and sin will be dealt with once and for all. Justification, glorification, and right down the middle, we use the word sanctification, which deals with the present help we need in fighting sin. Justification, forgiveness. Glorification, ultimate deliverance. Sanctification, present help. So when I read the text, I'm sure everybody relates, everybody. Paul says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. That seems like a descriptor of someone who loves God and wants to live in his ways. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This reflects, we we use this language uh, in the Christian faith a little bit, the already and not yet aspects to the Christian faith. The already of the Christian faith, that aspect of salvation is that believers have been saved already, have been saved. And the not yet aspect um, refers to believers that they will be saved ultimately for all eternity upon Christ's return. And Christians live in the tension between the already and the not yet. So here's my word to to the Christian. You can and you should battle against sin. You can and you should experience victory over sin. You can grow in holiness. We're talking about sanctification, growing in holiness, and therefore become less hypocritical. Really practical question for us tonight. Are you engaged in the battle? Are you engaged in the battle? Battling against sin, experiencing victory, growing in holiness, being sanctified. Because as you do those things, just really practically, we're talking about hypocrisy tonight, you will become less of a hypocrite the more holy you become. Remember, I already said it. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ in the world. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. And so, and so on the one hand, we acknowledge that we're hypocrites who need Jesus. And on the other hand, we recognize that as followers of Jesus, we're in the midst of being transformed and we can shine as distinct lights in the world. We can refract the light of Christ to those around us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Uh, 20th century preacher from London um, did a series of sermons uh, on the book of Romans and he used this illustration along the way. He said, imagine a country in which one group of people has for centuries enslaved another group of people. So whenever a member of the enslaved group would meet a member of the oppressing group on the street, the oppressor could order the other person around and if they didn't obey, The member of the oppressing group could have them beaten or killed. They had the right and the power to do it. But then a good king comes into power and decrees emancipation of all the slaves. And he puts soldiers and police officers and judges in place to ensure that his decree gets put in motion. And they are free. But is that all it really takes? He goes on to ask. Is that all it really takes? The reality is that whenever a member of the enslaved group who had been enslaved for their whole lives and from a group that had been enslaved for centuries, whenever a member of the enslaved group would encounter a member of the oppressing group, they would tremble and quake. And when a member of the oppressing group would still order around members of the enslaved group, they did it. The oppressing group didn't have the power to do that anymore. And if the formerly enslaved individuals stood up against it, the oppressor couldn't have done a thing. And yet, over and over and over again, the members of the enslaved group continued to act like slaves. Because even though their status had changed, they truly were free. They didn't always grasp it. 
didn't always realize it, didn't always live according to it. They spent a good deal of their time as slaves, even though they'd been set free. Every Christian in this room tonight is in that condition. It's the only reason you do anything wrong. The only reason you still veer off course. The only reason you don't break those sinful habits. You have a real status change. It's not sim merely symbolic. A real status change. It really happened. And you have been given real power. Romans 8 tells you that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and will give life to your mortal body here and now. In other words, the Christian has the power to fight sin that dwells inside them. And you can win. But the former slave owner says from across the street, hey, get over here. And instinctively, you start to walk across the street towards them. But part way through, you should stop yourself and say, wait a minute. You don't own me anymore. I've been set free. I have a new master. And I can follow him. You have been justified. You will be glorified. You are being sanctified. Are you engaged in the battle? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you contending for the faith? Are you drawing people to Christ? We've talked about one reason, why, two reasons now, why, why people look in at the church and say they're hypocrites. One reason is, because there are those who attend church who are not authentic followers of Jesus, do not truly live for him. The second reason we said is because authentic Christians too also exhibit hypocritical behavior. But here's the third and most important thing I want to say to you tonight. Picking up in verse 24 of Romans 8, uh, 7 again. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's Paul saying? Who will deliver me? Jesus will deliver me. See, what both views, I gave you two views tonight on, on Romans 7, on their interpretation. But what both views of Romans 7 agree on is this. Sin is the problem. And Jesus is the answer to that problem. So here's where I want to land the plane tonight. The church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people. It's built upon Jesus. Celebrities, politicians, religious people, all hypocrites. Jesus stands alone as the only fully righteous, unhypocritical person who's ever lived. So I always, in interacting with individuals who talk about the hypocrisy of the church, I always want to invite them to weigh Christianity not on its followers, but on its leader. Over the last number of years, there's been a pile of singing competition shows, right? I'm sure you've had a favorite over the years. And, and a lot of these shows um, show you like the worst auditions or worst performances, you know, clips, which is the best part of these shows, right? Do we all agree on that? That's the best part. 
So imagine with me that there's a tone-deaf guy. He gets up in front of the, the judges or this huge audience, and he belts out just terribly, belts out an Aretha Franklin song. Would it even make sense for you to conclude at the end of his uh, ear-splitting performance to say, oof, Aretha Franklin is not the queen of soul? It wouldn't, would it? Because it'd be like, don't judge the queen of soul by that guy's performance. You need to listen to Aretha. Can I, can I be really honest with you? I, I preach at Central a lot. I'm a part of leading our church. I routinely feel like the tone-deaf guy trying to belt out the song. And my heart, even though my, 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 my finish is not always great, my heart is that people would hear the King of Kings, you know? Like that's the point. I want to point you to the King of Kings. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. And I have a lot of repenting to do for when I'm the tone-deaf guy doing a pretty poor job of letting people hear from Jesus. That's on me. But I want you to weigh Christianity on Jesus. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart wrote, Christianity does not stand or fall on the way Christians have acted throughout history or are acting today. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus, and Jesus was not a hypocrite. He lived consistently with what he taught. And at the end of his life, he challenged those who loved, uh, lived with him night and day for over three years to point out any hypocrisy in him. His disciples were silent because there was none. Since Christianity depends on Jesus, it is incorrect to try to invalidate the Christian faith by pointing to horrible things done in the name of Christianity. A number of different points are being made in this quote here. Let me, let me uh, spell them out. Here's the first thing it's saying. Whether or not Christianity is true doesn't depend on its how its adherents behave. This, of course, does not excuse hypocrisy in the church, but neither does it mean that hypocrisy is sufficient reason to dismiss Christianity. That's the first thing being said. Here's the second. Jesus was not a hypocrite in any sense of the word. And often even critics agree with this point, actually exalting the high moral standards of Jesus, even while disagreeing or not coming to the same conclusions about the larger claims that he made about himself. The third thing that this quote touches on is hypocrisy on a large scale, such as the Crusades. And we're actually going to get to this in a few weeks when we look at the doubt, don't all the injustices in church history discredit Christianity? Again, this doesn't excuse hypocritical behavior, but separates it from the center of Christianity, which is this, Jesus and his claims, Jesus and his works. Jesus is in his life. Jesus wasn't what he says about himself. I know there's a few philosophers in the room, so let me just say a couple things here. Accusations of hypocrisy assume that there are moral standards that hypocrites break. But why do those standards exist? And where do they come from? Why do we want to hold them to them? 
The same is said of evil and suffering, which, which we talked about last week. We want to put God on the hook for evil and suffering in the world, but the fact that we use such categories is actually more evidence for the existence of God than not. And so, in terms of hypocrisy, rather than serve as an argument against faith in God, the objection to hypocrisy actually supports the reality of a transcendent moral being who stands over the fray. And in the Christian tradition, we refer to that transcendent moral being as Jesus. Matt Smethers kind of summarized the, the Bible story, the whole Bible story this way. Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter was a denier. Thomas was a doubter. Lazarus was dead. Jesus saves. So we're a part of God's big story. What's our part in it? Can I be really honest with you? You want to know what our part is? Liar, murderer, adulterer, denier, doubter, dead. What's Jesus' part? What's Jesus' start in the, part in the big story of God? Savior, rescuer, redeemer, Lord, grace giver. See, Jesus brings dead people to life, and it's, it, dead people aren't the point. We looked at the story of Lazarus last week. You know what's so, I, this is one of the things I love about the Lazarus story. Jesus is like, Lazarus, come out. And like Lazarus comes out in his burial clothes, and then there's no more mention of Lazarus, just more mention of Jesus. Why? The, the former dead guy isn't even the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point. It's not those who screw up who are the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus heals people. Jesus brings dead people to life. Jesus is the point. And Jesus takes away the sins of those who sincerely repent. So I want to invite you to look to the leader of the church and the entire Christian faith. I want you to look to Jesus. The gospel, the good news, isn't about what we can do for God. It's about what God has done for us. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look to him. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we love you. We want to just give you praise for who you are. Um, it's not easy to look at hypocrisy and, 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 and realize our part. I shudder going by the Rogers kiosk, and I know as I've preached about hypocrisy, many things come to the surface in our own minds about the hypocrisy of ourselves before our family, before our friends, before our coworkers, before those we go to school with. Lord, we rightly should repent of those things. We don't want to get in the way for people in our lives of the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus, the grace that he extends to sinners. So Jesus, help us to engage in the battle and become less hypocritical as you sanctify us. Jesus, I pray that over us. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to love those in our lives and, and try and love this community well as a church, Jesus, I ask Help us get out of the way and shine a spotlight on your son, Jesus. God, we love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.